good to be with you uh, again this morning. An opportunity to uh, bring God's word to you. This morning we'll be looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. You'll find that in your bulletin, of course, if you have a Bible, you can turn to it uh, there as well. You probably don't remember this, but last February, I think it was my first time actually preaching at, at Christ the King. Um, less, uh, you may remember that, uh, but you probably don't remember the passage that I preached from. It was 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, and it was also during the time at which you as a congregation were uh, nominating candidates, uh, individuals who might be called to serve in the capacity of, of elders or, or deacons. Uh, 1 Peter 5 describes the role of of elders, whom Peter also refers to as shepherds. It's the same word for pastors. Uh, we find that word here used in Ephesians chapter 4 as well. And, and that's part of the reason I selected this passage for us to spend time with this, this morning. Once again, even though you've just installed an uh, individual who, whom you believe Jesus has gifted this church with to serve as elders and, and deacons in particular, um, you're beginning, beginning to think through that again. But what I want us to give attention to, especially as we look at this passage in Ephesians 4, is how that role is situated. Those, those roles, though uh, Paul only speaks to the role of, of pastors, teachers here, uh, deacons are described elsewhere, just as essential uh, in, the, in the care that Jesus provides for his church. But I want us to give attention to how those unique roles within the life of the church are situated within a much more uh, dynamic ministry in which the entire body of Christ um, plays a part, which means it's a, it's a, uh, a ministry in which you, as well as I, and in, in the whole of the body participates. That, too, is part of the care Jesus provides for his church. Uh, not only specific roles, uh, but every part of the body, as Paul describes here. Now, let me also say before I read the passage and these things you can be attentive for as I read, Paul, as he often does, if you're familiar with, with his letters, um, uh, brings rich theology to bear uh, for practice within the life of the church, and, and that's no less true in, in this passage. It would take several sermons to, to address uh, the depths of what Paul describes here. Of course, this is just one sermon situated uh, between uh, Eric's series on 1 Samuel and transitioning uh, back to John. And, and so there's no way, I'll just warn you up front, to address the depths of what Paul deals with here as he brings the Trinity to bear, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, he speaks of the incarnation of Christ as his descending. Uh, he speaks of his ascending and pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and we'll make reference to all of those things, but again, we'll do so focused on Paul's application to the church. And so let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Paul writes, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, 
one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for works of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Uh, gracious and almighty God, who, who is, fills all things, Lord Jesus, as you have ascended and reigned and, and now reign over the nations, uh, we pray that you would convey to us this morning uh, the greatness of who you are and the greatness of the salvation that you have given, including the gifts uh, through which we display your grace to one another within the world. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray that you would encourage us as we consider these words to uh, live our lives accordingly. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I know that uh, surely a number of you have uh, gone through surgeries of one kind or another. And uh, the thing about surgery, as, as some of you know more, more than others, is that the process itself, the surgery itself, may seem rather simple, but it's the rehab that's the especially painful part. Uh, you were probably, hopefully, asleep for the surgery, unaware of everything that was happening, and uh, you may wake up and the doctor tells you everything went according to plan, and, and you may not feel very much pain as the pain medication is, is uh, kicking in and doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, but then, maybe just within a number of hours or uh, just within a day, you're expected to get up. Uh, you're expected to start moving. Appointments are made where you come in and, and see someone for rehab, and they start to move your body in ways that it has not moved in some time, and that creates a lot of pain for you. Uh, the initial uh, surgery, uh, for which you were uh, unaware of what was happening, relatively painless, uh, but once you're awake and you begin moving uh, as you should, uh, you experience great discomfort. And I, and I use that as analogy, as, as Scripture does, to describe the church as the body of Christ. And as you think about Christ, the great physician, 
Uh, Christ the Savior, how he works his salvation into our lives. Uh, the initial work which he does, he is the one who is active. We are passive. Uh, just earlier in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, he describes us as dead in our trespasses and sins. He accomplishes what he does, uh, brings about salvation, and he applies that salvation in our lives by his Holy Spirit, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. But then comes this ongoing work in which we're called to participate, which Paul then turns his attention to here. And it's something that happens within the church as the body of Christ. And so in many ways, we can think of the church as the place where we are rehabilitated, where the salvation that God has worked into our lives through His Spirit, we now participate in as He reconditions us, as He reforms us, as He refashions us as His people together. Again, if you've gone through physical therapy, you know the motions that you're doing with whatever part of the body that they've surgically repaired, the motions they're having you doing are the ones that are, you're supposed to be able to do. But they seem so unnatural to you. Uh, maybe it seems awkward as well as painful. And often that can be our experience in the church as well. Uh, awkward, uh, maybe even painful at times as the body is rehabilitated. And that's what the New Testament describes often as the experience is in the church as we anticipate wholeness, as we anticipate full health, as Paul goes on to describe here. But in this process, and this is what will structure uh, our examination of this passage, we see how Jesus brings together what doesn't seem to belong. Jesus gives responsibility to those who may appear unfit, but because Jesus is the head, he is the one who causes his church to grow. And we're going to look at each of those as, as we consider how it is that Jesus cares for the church. How it is that Jesus cares for the church. How does he care for the church? How does he rehabilitate us as, as the body of Christ? Well, in the church first, he brings together things that don't appear to belong. Now again, we're jumping into Paul's letter to the Ephesians towards the end in, in chapter 4, but this is something that Paul has addressed already. If you have a Bible, you can look back at Ephesians chapter 2, and, and there in verses 14 through 16, Paul describes how in the church, uh, Jesus brings both Jew and Gentile together. Uh, because his aim, and these are Paul's words, are to create in himself one new man. And, as he says, to reconcile both to God in one body through the cross. And as most of you know, this, this language of reconciliation 
is central to the gospel. And in fact, the entirety of Scripture tells the, the account of how sin separates and scatters. But God in His grace comes to gather a people to Himself. A taking what is divided in the world and bringing it together in His grace. And He does that through the cross. Uh, through the cross, He reconciles us to Himself um, as, as Christ comes, the eternal Son of God, taking upon Himself our humanity, doing what we could never do for ourselves and enduring the wrath of God for our sin that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled, that we might be brought near to God. We are separated from Him. He reconciles us to Himself. We are separated from one another. And likewise, His intent is to reconcile us to one another as well. And of course, it's not just Jew. And Gentile. In fact, that distinction for most of us may seem foreign. The New Testament goes to, on to mention other things that divide, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, um, other divisions within the world that God intends His grace to overcome. Separated by sin, uh, gathered with the gospel, with our lives to be shaped more and more by His grace. That is what God is doing through the church. And it's basic. Um, it's basic to the very meaning of the word church. Maybe some of you know this, though the word church to us sounds like a very religious, uh, Christian kind of word. Uh, in the day that Paul was writing, that the New Testament was written, church was a common word, a word that simply meant gathering. A word that meant assembly. And we see here that church is never simply a place where we're to come for individual encouragement, though of course we intend that to happen as we're gathered together. Church is, is never simply a place for your family to be nurtured, but of course that is a consequence, a result that we intend to happen. Church is never simply a place where you come to learn more truth, deeper truth, though of course that is something that occurs as well. But more basic than that, more fundamental than that, the church is where we are brought together in a way that only God himself can accomplish because of the grace he shows us in Jesus Christ, his son. As awkward as and as painful at times even as it may be, as we are, are rehabilitated by the gospel of God's grace, where what was scattered and separated and torn apart is brought together again as one body. We often talk about compatibility in relationships. Uh, if you're married, uh, more than likely, unless you're in an arranged marriage, what drew you together was some sense of commonality. Uh, your personality is connected. Even if you couldn't put your finger quite on it, there was some something, some commonality, some sense of purpose that you shared that drew you together, that attracted you to one another. You complemented each other. 
Uh, maybe prior to your marriage, as Angie and I did, as we were going through premarital counseling, we did one of those personality tests uh, to show where it was we would connect, but where potentially we, we might have, have problems. We have different personalities. But regardless of, of how compatible you think you should be, as all of us know, and especially those of us who are married know, the deeper problem isn't those outward features of personality as much as it is the depth of sin uh, that resides within our hearts. That is what divides us. It's always what divides us. And, and that's the point. We're incompatible apart from the grace of God that he's shown in Jesus Christ, his son, and the cross. And as the church, we are to be witnesses together of his reconciling work, not only as individuals to God, but also in our relationships with one another. If you look here at verses 4 through 6, in, in these three verses, Paul uses the word one seven different times there. There is one body, he says, and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope, that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one, in God, one God and Father, he says, of all. Before coming to Westminster, I served in, in pastoral ministry. Uh, prior to that, I was in university ministry. But in my years of pastoral ministry, one of the things I enjoyed most uh, was hearing individuals' accounts of how they came to know the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And, and often that would happen in a very pointed way as they were people were coming to join us as members of our church. We want to hear their profession of faith. How, how is it that you came to know and experience the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus? And it always amazed me that the many different accounts that people gave of the ways that they came to experience the grace of God, know and understand the grace of God. For as many individuals as there were, there were various nuances of how that came about in their lives. Maybe that's true for you and those whom you're sitting next to. Some of you grew up in the church. Others of you grew up in families far removed from the church. Maybe in your experience coming to understand the gospel of God's grace, it was a, looking back on it, what appeared to be a slow and subtle process. Many pieces coming together over time uh, until uh, there came a moment where you understood God's grace and its truth and, and trusted Christ. Or maybe for you, it was more dramatic and more immediate. Individually, we have many different experiences of guilt Many different experiences of shame, many different experiences of the power of sin in various ways in our lives or God's protection of us from it. But the real story, and this is actually what amazed me in, in ministry, the real story is not in all those varied, varied differences. The real story is how this one God as diverse as we may be, 
gathers us all together in his grace through his son despite them all. One Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. But here's the challenge that we experience as we're brought together. When Christ calls us together, it requires a character that is only formed by his grace. And you see that in what Paul talks about here in the first couple of verses. These things that are required and that as he puts us together, he calls forth from our lives. If you look there at verse 1 of chapter 4, where he talks about walking in a manner worthy of our calling. How? He says, with all humility. In verse 2, he says, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, he says, in love. That's the character, and you will never find a church that does not require these things of you. And in fact, it's the very reason he builds his church in the way that he does. With all the many various people, with their various experiences, various personalities, bringing us together, that these characters, characteristics would be called forth from our life as an expression of his grace. Think about this. When is humility required from you? When is it necessary for you to be gentle or patient? When is it required that you bear with another? It's not when things are easy. It's not when things are going great, but it's more often when things are difficult, when there's disagreement, where there are misunderstandings, where there are problems. Of course, that's when grace is needed. And Jesus puts us together in the church so that we can put these things into practice in such a way that would display his grace and his reconciling work. But often the temptation we have is to run from those opportunities, from those very opportunities that we have to manifest his reconciling grace. Instead, we're shocked and surprised when we experience difficult relationships in the church. Could it be, though, that this indeed is why Jesus brings us together so that his grace was, would be called forth more and more in our lives in the way that he describes. That's why Jesus brings together things that don't appear to belong. It's actually how he cares for the church so that we would learn things like humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. So that's the first thing. How does Jesus care for his church? He puts things together that don't appear to belong. Here's the second thing. How does Jesus care for his church? He gives responsibility or roles to uh, those who may appear to be unfit and who are in themselves actually unfit. When God gives grace, Paul describes, an expression of that grace comes in the form of gifts. 
see that if you look at, at verse 7 here where he says, but grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace saves all alike. It's the common experience, though we have uh, diverse ways in our lives that we've come to understand it. His one grace, one faith, one, one baptism. But here there's a diversity in the expression of the grace he gives in the form of gifts through which he calls us to uniquely serve. And that in different ways. An individual expression of God's grace, a measure granted by Christ in the form of gifts. Now Paul here, as he does elsewhere, he, he doesn't refer to various examples of, of these gifts outside of what he describes in verse 11, and we'll give attention to that. He does elsewhere in places like Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. But of course, as we consider gifts, this too reminds us that nothing is by merit. It's not what you bring, what, what you offer, but it's simply you using what has been given to you. Right? Nothing is merited in the Christian life. Not even, not even the service is, is rendered based on what you have to offer as much as what you've been given by Jesus for the sake of the body as a whole. All is received, both for our salvation and humble service, as Paul calls in verse 12, works of ministry. Uh, and with these gifts, he uses each of us to hold his grace before others. He uses you within the body to display his grace. And of course, all of us with any measure of self-awareness realize how unfit we are to do that. But of course, that's part of the point, is that we are unfit apart from his grace. And in fact, sensing to the depths of your soul how unfit you are is part of what qualifies you to serve in a truly gracious way. Not out of confidence in natural ability, but in Christ and what he has called you to and gifted you for. Now Paul mentions here several various forms of service, specific gifts that he's given in verse 11. Uh, it says he gave the apostles, the prophets. He gave the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, or shepherds and teachers, same, same word in, in the Greek, specific, identifiable roles. Earlier in Chapter 2, verse 20, Paul describes the apostles and the prophets as the foundation for the church with Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. And in that age of the apostles has passed, yet Jesus continues to use these gifts. He describes as evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the building up of his church unto his return, along with all of the saints that he mentions here as he cares for the church. But the, the main point here is that only God's grace equips any to serve, and we see that with the apostles themselves. Think of what was read earlier from Matthew chapter 16. The apostle Peter, with great confidence, standing forth from 
in, with, among the twelve, identifying Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replies, and I'll tell you who you are. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But then Peter quickly displays his own weakness, uh, his own unfitness, as Jesus begins to talk about what it means for him to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And his suffering and his death, and Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. This is not what it means for you to be the Christ Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. But that's not Peter's only fault, his only flaw. Of course, after Jesus' crucifixion, he denies Jesus three times. I tell you, I do not know the man. But not only then, after Jesus' resurrection, after his ascension, you read in Galatians chapter 2 where the apostle Paul confronts Peter because Peter was not eating with Gentiles inconsistent with the gospel of God's grace that gathers. Peter the apostle, a gift to the church with failures and flaws, part of the foundation, the rock. But here we see uh, that even the apostles remind us that our hope is in Jesus alone. The emphasis is always on the grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ. Not an apostle, not a pastor, not a teacher. And only when we remember that will we all together use the gifts we have from Jesus to serve graciously with humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. Again, in verse 7, if the measure of Christ's gift to you is an expression of his grace, then every gift must be graciously, be used graciously if it's to build up the body of Christ. Now, I want to point to one uh, uh, potential difficulty here um, in point of, of confusion or maybe even contention in an interpretation of what Paul says, and it's the relationship of verse 11 and 12 here. In verse 11, again, we've mentioned how Paul describes these specific roles of apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And then he goes on in verse 12 to describe the uh, effect of their ministry to equip the saints for works of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And there are two ways to read these verses in relationship to one another. Uh, and they're reflected really in, in a couple of different translations. There's the translation that I read from, which is the English Standard Version. Uh, the other translation, uh, the King James Version, reflects the difference in the way that you might interpret these verses. And I'll sum it up this way. Basically, it's about whether there should be an extra comma in verse 12, which is actually of some consequence. Uh, to read it in the other way uh, would read something like this in verse 12. These various offices in verse 11, to equip the saints of ministry, comma, for, or to equip the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for building up the body of Christ. Now, the significance there is that extra comma determines whether you believe 
It's pastors and teachers who do the equipping and also who do the work of ministry and also who build up the body of Christ. Or, as the English Standard Version has it here, whether they, the pastors and teachers, equip the saints who then share in the work of ministry so that the body of Christ is built up. In other words, it's ministry that builds the church primarily accomplished by those with these specific roles or by the whole as gifted by Jesus Christ. Now, in terms of what Paul wrote, actually both is acceptable and, and good Bible scholars have disagreed. Um, I tend towards the English Standard Version uh, that sees those specific roles as equipping the saints who then participate in the ministry where the whole body is built up. And there's some reason within the text for doing that. Not to get too technical, but there is a change in prepositions that Paul uses. But more importantly, as you look at the broader context that Paul speaks to here, regardless of the emphasis, the growth of the church as God intends is a result of what the whole church, the whole body, is doing together. This is clear in verses 15 and 16. Verse 16, where each part works properly, causing the body to grow. The apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers in verse 11 have this role of speaking God's word primarily, words of truth and grace, so that the entire body will be built up in order that, as it says in verse 15, we all together might speak the truth in love to one another, that we would grow up together into Christ. See, the growth does not happen without each one of us to use Paul's language here. The church will not be built, will not mature apart from you. In other words, you are part of the care that Jesus has provided for his church. Some of you may be familiar with the game Minecraft. Uh, it had its heyday a number of years ago, but I understand it's kind of coming back a little bit in popularity. You may not be familiar with that game unless you're maybe in your 20s or, or a bit younger or the parent of, of one who is. It's, it's a computer game that's a lot like Legos. It, you build and block forms a, within a virtual world. And it's called Minecraft because you're mining different things. And you're building other things with that. You can mine rock or mine earth or cut down trees. But the funny thing, the interesting thing about the game, if you cut down a tree at the base, you know, real trees, the whole tree falls to the ground. But in Minecraft, you can harvest wood at the base, but the branches remain floating in midair. You can dig around a all, all these blocks of earth and leave one block of earth or, or stone suspended in midair. Now, that's convenient for the game. You can do more with it in that way. But of course, it's not the way the real world functions. It's all dependent on one another. The various parts uh, cannot do what they're doing apart 
from what they're built on. Without the others, they would collapse. And the same is true for the church. None of us is floating independently of others. Take one out, and the others can remain exactly as though they were before. What happens to you affects others. Within the church, what happens with others affects you. As we are called to bear with one another, to bear each other's burdens. And that's, again, why he has put us together. We are here for a reason. As unfit as though you know yourself to be, because of his grace and the gifts that he's given to each, he will use you to display his grace to others within the church. So what he call, it's what he calls us to. And this brings us to the, the last point, more brief, about how Jesus cares for the church. Uh, because he's the head, he is the one who makes it grow. If you look here at verses 8 and 10, quoting from Psalm 68 that was read in the call to worship. And it's a, it's a uh, as, as Eric said earlier, uh, it's a hymn of victory. A, a psalm of victory for the Davidic king coming in triumph, returning with the spoils of war and bestowing his gifts on others. As Paul quotes from that, applying it to Jesus, who is the truly triumphant king, who gives liberally from his conquest to his church that it might do all that he intends it to do. But contrast that just for a minute for the way that we often tend to think about the church, not as victorious, but as a small remnant barely surviving. But if you think of what Jesus promises in Matthew 16, I promise to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's a picture of the church extending outward into the world exactly as the Lord Jesus intends and none are able to stop it. Jesus giving the gifts needed to build his church exactly as he intends out of his abundance. As we minister with that confidence within the church in the midst of of the world. Now something briefly I'd like to point out here is that we often think about these gifts in terms of individual abilities. Well, you have this gift and you have this other gift. You have the gift of administration or leadership or teaching or hospitality. And, and that's not untrue and other places in the New Testament refer to gifts in terms of unique abilities, but it's so much more than that. It's not something you bring. It's not some particular ability you bring to serve in some narrow way. It's more than that. You yourself, as a whole person, are the gift that Jesus has given to his church. The whole of you, shaped by God's grace, in relationship with others, yes, together with your unique abilities, whatever they may be, but it's you as a whole person. 
And together we contribute to the growth of the church, not, but because, not just because of some unique ability, but because of the whole of who you are, shaped and formed by God's providence and our many varied experiences, but most importantly, shaped by God's grace that we might speak the truth and love to one another as we're called to do here. As he says again in verse 16, as every joint and ligament, each part at work causes the body to grow. Now, one, one last thing briefly also as a part of, of this point. Of course, we know that the growth of the church that Paul portrays here is not simply about getting bigger and bigger. It's about maturity, right? That's the language that Paul uses here. Uh, it's about mature manhood, as he says in verse 13. And of course, uh, something that characterizes the growth of, of a body is that it happens rather evenly, doesn't it? Um, at least if things are working the way they ought, with some variation, it's not as though the, the head grows really large first and then the arms and then the legs or whatever part it might be, the whole grows up together. And that should be true within the life of the church as well. It's not that we uh, simply are concerned with, with doctrine and have abnormally large heads with the rest of us shrunken in size. No, it's as, as our knowledge of God's truth grows, the hands for service grow. Uh, the, feats, the, the, the feet and legs that would carry us into the world and towards one another grow and strengthen and develop. Not just one thing, but all of it together, each of us apart as we grow in maturity with thanksgiving for the diverse gifts he's given uh, that we might speak and serve in the way that he calls us to. In fact, that's how Peter describes these gifts. He simply describes them in terms of speaking and serving. Peter in 1 Peter 4 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Him, him who speaks, he says, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, he says, serving with the strength that God supplies, good stewards of God's varied grace. That's how that verse is translated. Good stewards we ought to be of God's very grace that we would grow up together into Christ, speaking words of grace, as he says later in, in this chapter down in verse 29, words that fit the occasion that even give grace to those who hear as he rehabilitates us, brought together as those saved by the reconciling work of Christ, fashioned more and more into his image. May that be true for us. Let's pray together. Gracious and almighty God, we give you thanks for your salvation, that you have worked your grace individually in many different circumstances into our personal lives. But what's more, you have brought us together with one another that we might hold your grace out to each other and display your reconciling work to the world in our midst.
Would we be that more and more with the gifts that you have given? All for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.